looking forward to this message tonight all day long, perhaps for a different reason than you might imagine, because this is my last message before I go on vacation. Uh, I'm, my family and I will be leaving on Friday of this week for a time of vacation. We'll be away from, I'll be away from the pulpit for three Sundays. Uh, we have some fine speakers coming in. In my absence, uh, Mr. Roper will be speaking next Sunday morning. And I know many of you who have been enjoying his messages in my absence will be looking forward to this time to hear from him again. But uh, coming to the end of a series of preaching uh, messages like this, I find myself uh, wanting to kind of cram everything in and say a few things that I've wanted to be saying for some time, hoping to have some reason for as uh, in expository ministry. Uh, coming to a period of stopping like that, I always feel like the young poet from Japan. Some of you heard that rhyme. There was a young poet from Japan whose poetry no one could scan. When told it was so, he replied, Yes, I know, but I try to get as many words in the last line as I can. <laughs> and now we've come, I've come to the last line for a little while. Our uh, scripture tonight is the book of Nahum. The book of Nahum out of the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets, almost, uh, I think it's the fourth, isn't it? Fourth, fifth from the end of the Old Testament. And... Uh, this little book is one of the neglected books because it's so obscure, so small, that seldom is it read, and uh, much less frequently is it understood. But every portion of Scripture is indispensable. Each has its own contribution to make. I hope you've discovered this. This is why the Apostle Paul could say, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, through, thoroughly furnished, unto all good works. And uh, that's true of this book, of this little prophecy of Nahum. Uh, it's no exception. Many of you reading this may feel that it's kind of a dry account of ancient history. But this prophecy reveals something of God that no other book of the Bible so clearly reveals. I hope you recall in our panoramic survey through the scriptures the place that the prophets fill in the program of Revelation. It is the job of the prophets, the calling of the prophets, to reveal to us the character of God. They unfold to us the divine attributes. And each of the prophets primarily sees God, and he sees him in a different light. And as you read through the prophets, therefore, you're seeing one facet after another, flashing like a diamond in the sunlight of the mighty character and attributes of an eternal God. Now, the attribute which the prophet Nahum was given to reveal was the attribute of God's anger, God's anger. I suppose there's no doctrine quite as repugnant to people today as that of the anger or the wrath of God. This is one doctrine that many would like to forget. And there are those people who picture God as kind of a 
kindly gentleman with a merry twinkle in his eye who cannot bear the thought of punishing anyone or judging anyone. And if there are any such here tonight, I suggest you give careful attention to the word of the prophet Nahum. For it was Nahum's task to unfold, as no other book, the anger of God. And in this prophecy, you see the God of Sinai flashing forth in awful fury, a God before whom man must stand silent and trembling. You cannot read this prophecy without sensing something of the solemnity of this tremendous picture of God. Now, as we begin this little book, it's important to know at whom and why God is so angry, as the prophet depicts him. This prophecy is directed against the city of Nineveh, the same Nineveh, which in a, a few uh, books back, you remember, was the center of interest uh, of, the, of the prophet Jonah, to whom God sent the prophet Jonah. And Jonah preached in Nineveh, and Nineveh repented, remember, in sackcloth and ashes, and God's anger was withheld from this city, and he spared it, because from the king on down to the lowest citizen of the city, they turned to God and repented of their sins and turned from their iniquities, and God heard and spared this city. Now, this uh, book of Nahum stands in point of time some 100 years after the prophecy of Jonah. And uh, during this time, Nineveh had repented of its repentance and had begun to do the same things again that called forth the, the, threaten, uh, the threat of judgment under the prophet Jonah. The prophet Nahum was sent to minister to the southern kingdom of Judah at the time of the invasion of the Assyrian king Sennacherib. Some of you who know your ancient history will remember that name. Sennacherib was the king of, of Syria who invaded Israel at the time of the prophet Hezekiah, uh, Isaiah. And uh, he came from their capital, Nineveh. And it was from this great city in the north, the capital of Assyria, that the armies of the Assyrians came frequently against the land of Judah and of Israel. And if you remember this story of, of Isaiah, it, this was a time when God moved in marvelous protection of his people. And when Sennacherib came down against the, the people of Israel, God met them and destroyed uh, the army overnight. We'll see more of that a little bit later on. But the name of this prophet, Nahum, means consolation, means comfort. And as the Assyrian army was spread out before the city of Jerusalem, surrounding the city, the prophet Nahum was given a message of consolation. You can imagine how consoling this would be when the armies are right there with their terrible reputation as ruthless uh, warriors who would come sweeping in and burn and destroy and rape and pillage and kill the children and spare no one. To have this prophet stand up in the midst of Jerusalem and declare to them that God was going to destroy Nineveh. For that's the subject of this prophecy. And the prophet's uh, this prophecy was given about a hundred years before the actual destruction of the city. Now, this is one of those parts of prophecy or of Scripture 
which is already fulfilled. Much of Scripture remains yet to be fulfilled. Many of the predictions of the Old Testament prophets look on beyond our own day to a time when the Lord is coming again and these prophecies remain unfulfilled even today. But as we look at this book, we see prophecies that in their initial fulfillment, in the uh, historical fulfillment, have long since come to pass. And this is one of the great proofs that the book of God is from God. For here is a description of exactly how this would happen given a hundred years before it took place. And uh, some of you who are interested in in apologetics might note that and use this with some who challenge the fact that the, the Word of God is, is uh, predictive in its element. Now, we can divide this little book into four divisions. And uh, each of them is a description for us of the anger of God. The first division is the first six verses. And uh, I think the simplest way to describe this view this vision of God in his wrath and anger is to simply use the, the Anglo-Saxon word terrible. Here is God terrible in wrath. Now listen to this. There's, these are beautifully poetic expressions, but they, they tremendously picture the wrath of God. The prophet says, The Lord is a jealous God and avenging. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and of great might, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither and the bloom of Lebanon fades. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt the earth is laid waste before him, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Who, his wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken asunder by him. What a description that is. When the prophet sees God looking at the hosts of Assyria, he sees him in anger, and his anger is terrible to behold. You know, there are some women, men and women, uh, who live in a perpetual temper. They have hot tempers. They boil over at the slightest provocation. And the interesting thing is that people don't usually fear this kind of a person. They pity them. We make jokes about these terrible-tempered Mr. Bangs and so on. There are other people that are more quiet and peaceful by nature. It takes a long time to stir them up. They endure irritations for a long time. But when their patience is exhausted, and at last they're brought to a boil, watch out. They're terrible in anger. Now that's the picture that the, that the prophet gives here. Here's an infinitely patient God. As the prophet says, he's slow to anger. He doesn't move rapidly. He has given this city... Uh, what, chance after chance to repent. He sent prophet after prophet. And uh, they believed one prophet and did repent and turned from their evil ways. And God spared the judgment that he said he was going to bring. But they repented from their repentance. That's one of the most terrible things that men can do. Having turned from their evil, they went back to the thing that they had said they would forsake. And this is what 
evokes the judgment of God at last. He, now he's angry. This is no temper tantrum. This is nothing uh, capricious about the anger of God. There's nothing selfish about it. It's a controlled anger, but it's a terrible rage. Fearsome to behold. Uh, you can get some idea of the awfulness of this divine anger in the fact that every Hebrew word for wrath or anger is compacted together in these six verses. Let me list them for you. Jealous, vengeance, wrath, anger, indignation, fierceness, fury. All of them there to describe the anger of God. Jealousy, that burning zealousness for a cause that feels so deeply in the heart. This doesn't mean selfish, petty jealousy like we exhibit sometimes, but God's overwhelming concern for that which he loves. And his vengeance, that's activity that strikes out against something. His wrath, the towering anger of his face, the, the blackness of it, the darkness of it is described here. The word for anger is the word that literally means heavy breathing, hot breathing. And the word for indignation literally means foaming at the mouth. You can see how, how uh, pictorial these words are. The word fierceness in Hebrew literally means heat. And the word fury means burning. And all this to describe a God who is terrible in his wrath, moved at last to the point of, of pouring out wrath upon that which has awakened it. A God in a white-hot passion, burning with a terrible, blistering rage. Now the second section, beginning with verse 8, uh, eight of chapter 1, brings before us another aspect of his anger. Here we learn that the wrath of God or the anger of God can be personal. For this is all directed upon uh, against a single individual. In verse uh, uh, 11, you have reference to Sennacherib, the general of the Assyrian armies. He says, Did one not come out from you who plotted evil against the Lord and counseled villainy? And this is all directed against this heathen pagan king who deliberately plotted to destroy the people after God had visited his city with grace and repentance and had saved them uh, from his anger before. Uh, and uh, verse 12 refers to the visit of the angel of death when Sennacherib came down before the host of Israel. If you read the uh, 30, 38th and 39th chapters of the prophecy of Isaiah, you have the description of this, how the Assyrian armies came down like a wolf out of the fold and spread out before the city of Jerusalem, and they sent taunting challenges up to, the, uh, up to King uh, Hezekiah, and told him that uh, uh, they, uh, they were going to take the city and that there was no strength that could stand against them. And you remember how uh, Isaiah tells us that Hezekiah took these messages and went and spread them before the Lord and prayed and asked God to save the city, even with the armies of Assyria ringing it about on every hand. And that night, we're told, the angel of death went through the Syrian hosts and slew 185,000 soldiers in one night. And in the, it tells us about when the Israelites woke up in the morning, 
they looked out, and here were 185,000 soldiers lying dead, slain by the angel of God in one night. Now, that's referred to in verse 12. Thus says the Lord, though they be strong and many, they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst his bonds asunder. This happened in one night. And as a result, the Assyrian armies went back and Jerusalem was saved. There's an interesting construction in the Hebrew there. It says, when the Israelites woke up in the morning, it says, the angel of death went through and slew 185,000. And the next verse says, and when they woke up in the morning, behold, they were all dead men. Now, of course, the ones who woke up in the morning were the Israelites, not the Assyrians there. Verse 15, verse 14 was literally fulfilled in the murder of Sennacherib. Now, Sennacherib, the Assyrian general, was spared uh, when the angel of death went through the Assyrian camp, and he returned to Nineveh. But in the temple, as he was worshiping, uh, returning from this uh, engagement with Israel, he was, uh, he was set upon by his own two sons who slew him and stole the crown for themselves while he was worshiping his false gods. And this is what you have in verse 14. The Lord has given commandment about you, he says. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the graven image and the molten image, and I'll make your grave, for you are vile. A hundred years before that happened, the prophet Nahum was told that God would, would deal with this man in his own temple, in the house of his gods, and would make his grave there. And this was fulfilled. God's anger sought him out and struck him down. And in verse 15, you have the joyful shout that went up from Jerusalem when the news came of Sennacherib's death. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall this wicked one come against you. He's utterly cut off. Now, what a, what a picture this is, you see, of the, of the fact that God's wrath can be directed against a person. This is what people are so slow to believe. They say God is a God of love. How can he possibly punish anybody? If God loves us, he can never punish us. This is the argument we hear. Uh, if God is concerned about us he, uh, and loves us, then under no conditions can he ever be persuaded to punish us. And when the argument is brought out that God's justice demands that he punish us, they say, no, this cannot be. God's love is greater than his justice. And therefore, under no circumstances can God's justice cause him to punish. And uh, with, there are many who are suffering under, de under this delusion that God will never do this. Now listen to this. Here's a man who is singled out, you see, as the prophet tells us, to bear the brunt of the wrath of God, as this man is, is responsible for the uh, depredations that were brought against Judah. Now there's a third section comprising all of chapter 2, which reveals still another aspect of God's anger. It's that he's thorough. He's thorough in his anger. God here is addressing Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. And he says, the shatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, gird your loins, collect all your strength. 
How dramatically this is put. Just as though the watchman is looking out and he sees the armies now of the Babylonians coming up to destroy the city of Nineveh. And history tells us that the combined armies of Syaxares and Nabopolassar, the father of Nebuchadnezzar, came up against, uh, against Nineveh. And he's called here the Shatterer. The Shatterer has come. He who dashes in pieces. And uh, verses 3 to 5 is the account of the battle in the city. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots flash like flame when mustered in array. The chargers prance. The chariots rage in the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. The officers are summoned. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The mantle is set up, and so on. This fourth verse, the chariots rage in the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. Sounds like the freeway, doesn't it? Actually, that verse has often been said to be a reference to a prediction of the coming of automobiles, which shows is a very good example of the folly of removing a verse from its context. It has nothing to do with automobiles, even though it, it can be made to describe them. They gleam like torches, they dart like lightning, and so on. It's simply a description, predictive description of the of the battle that raged in the streets of Nineveh as the Babylonians came up against it. Now, verse 6 is an amazing prophecy. In verse 6, you have a direct prophecy of the manner in which the city of Nineveh would be taken. And it describes the fall of the city. The river gates are opened. The palace is in dismay. Now, the interesting thing is that the Greek historian... Diodorus Siculus has preserved for us in history an account of how the city of Nineveh fell. And this is what he says out of this Greek historian's account. He says, There was an old prophecy that Nineveh should not be taken till the river became an enemy to the city. And in the third year of the siege, the river, that is the Babylonian siege, the river, being swollen with continual rains, overflowed every part of the city and broke down the wall for twenty furlongs. Then the king, that is the king of Nineveh, thinking that the oracle was fulfilled and the river became an enemy of the city, built a large funeral pile in the palace and collecting together all his wealth and his concubines and his eunuchs, burnt himself and the palace with them all. And the enemy entered at the breach that the waters had made and took the city. In other words, they came in through the river gates. The, uh, the enemy, uh, the Babylonian armies came in through the place where the river had broken out and flooded the city. And because of this mistaken idea of the king, they found them all gathered in the palace and there they put them to death. And this is exactly what Nahum had said 100 years before. The river gates are open. The palace is in dismay. Now that's how thoroughly God's anger works. When it begins to move in judgment, nothing escapes. Remember that old proverb that says, The mills of God grind slow, but they grind exceeding small. I remember the story, perhaps you do too, of the 
of the agnostic who made fun of a Christian farmer because he refused to work on, in his fields on Sunday. And he himself always went out every Sunday and worked in his fields and harvested his crops and so on. And uh, at the end of the year, he came to his Christian neighbor and he taunted him. He said, look, you, you're a Christian and you don't work on Sunday. But look at the way, uh, and uh, you've had a fairly good crop, but look at the way God's blessed me. Huh. I've worked every Sunday. And look at the abundance of grain that I have. Why, he says, this has been one of the richest October harvests I've ever had. And the Christian farmer turned to him and said, Yes, but God does not always settle his accounts in October. It's true, isn't it? See, when God begins to move, nothing escapes his grasp. Nothing. We're in his universe. We're creatures here. There's no way to run away. No place to hide. No place to go. We must deal with a God who says over and over again, that is, if his grace is thwarted, thwarted, he will rise in judgment at last. Now look at the next section, the third section, comprising um, all of chapter 2. Well, we've looked at this, uh, of, the, uh, of God's uh, address to the city of Nineveh. And uh, we've seen how he portrays the uh, overflow of the city. In chapter 2, verse 11, you have, Where is the lion's den, the cave of the young lions? This is a picture of the Assyrian lions. This was the mascot of Assyria, just as the bear is that of Russia, and the lion today is that of Britain. So it was here. He says, Where are these lions? And the lion brought his prey, where his cubs were, with none to disturb. And it's a taunt of the overthrow of the city, literally fulfilled. And the interesting thing is that if, if 60 years ago, only 60 years ago, you and I had visited the site of the city of Nineveh, we would have stood in the center of a wilderness of shifting sand where the armies of nations had actually passed over this place and had never known that this was the site of a great and ancient city. Now the archaeologists are beginning to unearth this. And we know now where Nineveh is located. But for centuries it was literally lost, utterly lost to the knowledge of men, buried under the shifting sands of the desert. But at last, Nineveh is now being brought to light again. Now the last chapter reveals how irresistible the anger of God is. In verse 4, we're told one of the reasons for Nineveh's destruction. And all for the countless harlotries of the harlot, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with their harlotries and people with their charms. This was a reference to the witchcraft and the sorcery that was practiced in the city of Nineveh. And in reply, God says, verse 5, Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I'll let nations look on your nakedness and kingdoms on your shame. I'll throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a gazing stock. And all who look on you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will bemoan her? When shall I seek comforters for her? And in verse 8, he, he reminds Nineveh 
that she had the example of the Egyptian city of Thebes uh, before her. And he says to her, Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her and her rampart of sea and water her wall and Ethiopia her strength, Egypt too and that without limit, Put and the Libyans her helpers? She too looked impregnable. Looked like nothing could take her. But yet, he says in verse 10, she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her little ones were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. Her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men bound in a chain. You see, God controls history. And when he decides to move against a nation, or a city, or an individual, there's no escape. (laughs) There's no place to hide. He's absolutely irresistible. In verse 14, in ironic language, he urges the city to fortify itself. Draw water for the siege, he says. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. Do anything you like. Anything you can think of. Yet there will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locusts. See, here's a picture of the anger of God. Terrible, personal, thorough irresistible and the solemn thing is that individuals today are in danger of this anger all through the scripture you see it flee from the wrath to come avoid the anger of God whose patience is outraged whose grace whose offer of grace is turned aside the twin sins that always call forth the wrath of God are pride and impenitence When a nation or a person, an individual, walks in pride and counts himself sufficient, says he's able to handle his own affairs and run his own life, that man is doomed. If a nation does. Or when God shows mercy and that man or nation remains impenitent, then this calls forth the blazing wrath of God. Now what's the message of Metneum to our own hearts? Well, there's an interesting double application here. On the, it's both national and individual. On the national level, it is a message of comfort, even to us today. Just as Nahum's word brought comfort to a nation that was threatened by this godless, cruel, and rapacious foe, we have a somewhat similar situation today. For the interesting thing, that in the Bible... The Assyrians were not only a people who were actual enemies of Israel, but they were a type of a coming uh, people that would threaten the peace of earth and would play an important part on the stage of world history in the last days. The Assyrian, in prophecy, is a picture of Russia and the communist nations the peoples of the north. If you want an interesting study, I suggest you compare Ezekiel, the 38th and 39th chapters, with this prophecy of Nahum. You notice in in verse uh, uh, 13 of chapter 2, God says, Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 5 of chapter 3, Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. And when Ezekiel opens his great prophecy against the king of the north, the the Gog and Magog of the land of Rosh, 
as he calls it, he opens with these very words, Behold, I am against you, O Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, says God. And uh, this is the word of comfort to us that in the day that when Israel is in the land as they are now, Russia comes down against it, God says, Behold, I am against thee. And uh, he threatens, he predicts the judgment of that nation on the, uh, the destruction of that nation on the mountains of Israel. Now there's an individual application as well to those of us, among us, who think that God is nothing but a God of love and never of wrath. Let them learn from Nahum that a God who is never angry is a God who cannot love. Did you ever think of that? God's wrath comes from his love. It's because God loves that he's angry and that his wrath must, must blaze, blaze forth. Now, you can prove that by yourself. What moves you to anger? Isn't it almost always when something or someone you love is threatened or injured? It may be yourself. We all love ourselves. What makes us angry? Somebody injures us. And because we love ourselves, we get mad at them. Or someone injures our child, and our wrath blazes forth. And if you cannot get angry when you hear or see injury and injustice, uh, then it's proof that you're not capable of love. For the one who cannot be angry is the one who cannot love. If you can read some of these stories of atrocities and oppression and the awful uh, traffic in body-destroying and soul-destroying drugs and narcotics among young people and never be moved to burning anger, then I tell you there's something wrong with you. You're incapable of love. You can't love. If God cannot smite, if he cannot destroy in vengeance then he has no capacity for love. You see, it's true, as we sometimes say, that God loves the sinner, but hates his sin. But that's only part of the story. The Bible tells us that if a man uh, loves his sin and holds on to it at all costs and refuses the grace of God, and against all the attempts of God to woo him from that thing, holds on to his sin, he becomes identified with it. And eventually, the wrath of God against his sin is also directed against the sinner. That's the picture, the whole story. I remember reading of a, of a man who appeared before a judge once, uh, and he was convicted of stealing, burglary. But he argued before the judge the uh, saying that the sentence was unjust because he said it wasn't he who stole, it was his arm. And that it wasn't fair of the judge to sentence him to the penitentiary. He should only sentence his arm. Uh, or, or he should let him go, really, because it wasn't fair, since his arm had done the stealing, not him. But the judge solved it. He sentenced the arm to 30 years in jail and said if the man wanted to accompany it, that was up to him. Now, you see, we become identified with that to which we cling. And this is what the Bible pictures. 
Now it's time to reassert this capacity of God for anger. Time again to warn men to flee from the wrath to come. Men have been saying, if only you would talk about a God of love, you could fill the churches. If only you would appeal to men about a God of love, they would turn from their wickedness and, and be drawn to the God of love. But the facts prove exactly the opposite, don't they? For the last 30 years or more, the message of the wrath of God has been almost totally absent from Christian pulpits. People have talked about a God of love, but that's been interpreted in the minds of men as a God of permissiveness, who will let you do anything, get away with it. And as a result, the churches are emptier than ever before. And instead of turning toward God, men have defied God and even refused to believe in God and turned away. You see, it takes both. You can't just preach the God of wrath without the God of love. But the wrath of God grows out of his love and is a manifestation of his love. As Charles Spurgeon said, he who does not believe that God will punish sin will not believe that he will pardon it through the blood of his son. But what's the way to escape the anger of God? Well, Nahum tells you that too. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 7, one verse, he says it. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. No man that ever turned to God will ever experience his wrath. You see, this complaint against God that he's a God of wrath seems to picture him as being vengeful without reason and that he's determined upon the destruction of men. But it never is so. God only destroys and exercises his wrath when men have rejected his love. There is a way of escape. There has been all along. We need not face the wrath of God. No one need. There's a way of escape. There always has been. And God's whole purpose has to be call men's attention to that way that they might take it. And that way is given here. He knows those who take refuge in him. I remember years ago when my children were small, one of my daughters and I had a disagreement one day, and I spanked her. And I spanked her hard. And I was angry, and she was crying. And I didn't know what to do after I'd spanked her. She was still seemingly unrepentant. But all of a sudden, she turned to me and ran and threw her arms about my neck. Now what was I to do? Continue to beat her? No, no. I couldn't have lifted a finger against her. She'd taken refuge in me. And God knows those who take refuge in him. And for those, his heart of love is always open. They'll never know his wrath. Isn't that what the scriptures say? As the Lord Jesus put it, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this word that thou knowest them that trust in thee. God, grant to us the wisdom 
the intelligence, the simple good sense to believe thee about thyself and to uh, to give up any attempt to try to uh, evade thy, thy love and thy grace, to feel that somehow we can get away with it, that somehow we shall escape. We will be an, an, uh, an exception to this sentence. Lord, make us to understand that that very same uh, persistence an unchangeability that guarantees we will never escape is the same persistence that prompts thy grace and reminds us that he who turns to thee shall never come into judgment but is passed from death unto life. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.